לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. special edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamet in Highland Park, New Jersey, and with me as always, my good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky from Arishan Shechesed in New York City, and Rabbi Barry Chesler from Solomon Schechter, Day School of Long Island. It's great to see you. We're going to say Gemar Chatimatova. I guess you can still say that. I hope you had a great... A good middle. A good, good young kipper. We want to just start out, first of all, thanking... All of our, we are now up to like a dozen, dozen <laughs> viewers, dozens of viewers and listeners. We, we are so honored to have you with us. We, we really, really enjoy the uh, idea of sharing these thoughts with you. And we love to get your comments. We love to get your reactions. Uh, and uh, so we, we, we truly, truly thank you. And we want to say a, just a special shout out of thinking we're our, our thoughts and, and prayers going out to our brothers and sisters in Israel, many of us uh, with actual family members in Israel. Israel is now going through uh, really what is a second surge of the coronavirus. And so uh, their experience of the holiday of Sukkot is going to be much different from our experience. Uh, but our experience is going to be different. Our experience is going to be, I think, uh, much more limited and limiting. Uh, I built a smaller sukkah this year, a really tiny sukkah, a sukkah, a sukket, a sukket. Um, and this is going to take us right into our first conversation. We're going to talk about sukkot. That's why this is a special edition of Parsha Talk, the sukkah edition. Um, I, want to, I want to start by reflecting on the symbol of the sukkah. And given that it's a symbol, given that it conveys a lot of different meanings, I just want to say Sukkot, free associate. I'm going to start with you, Jeremy Kalmanovsky. When you say Sukkot, when you think of the Sukkah, when you go into the Sukkah, what are some of the reflections that you have? I turn, I turn a little bit Kabbalistic. Um, the, the Zohar you know, usually refers to the, the Sukkah as just the covering, the shade, and it's like being absorbed into the divine presence. She's, she's the Shekhinah is just hovering above. I try to... Uh, if I get to shul early enough on the on the first days of Sukkot, uh, I like to take uh, you guys. You guys have houses and you have yards. I don't have a house. I don't have a yard. I live in the city. A lot of people put Sukkot in their air shafts. I've never done that. I have the Sukkah here in the shul on our rooftop, which is great. What is an air shaft? The the. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. Okay. Um, I go up to the roof. And I like to bring the Arba Minim, and I'm up there alone. Nobody's there. And we have a really nice Sukkah every year, but this year, this year we got this teeny little prefab thing. Uh, and, you know, shake the Lulav and Etrog in the Sukkah and try to feel the shelter, feel the shelter of the Divine Presence. Barry, your, your thoughts? So this is my wife Carol's favorite holiday, Sukkot. 
It's Zman Simchatenu, the high, holiday day, high holidays are over. And now she, as a cantor, can relax. And she loves to be a hostess. And my association with Sukkot is that it's the holiday of bitachon, of trusting God. It is the, we're at one with nature. And what appeals to me most, I guess, is that in Israel, in ancient times, this was the harvest season. And in Israel, because of the way the weather is, as soon as they bring in the harvest, they start worrying about next year. And because they're dependent on the rain that's going to start coming in two weeks after Shemini Atzeret, in Israel, you know pretty much how the agricultural year is going to be before you start planting. And so it's a time of great anxiety. You're happy on one hand that the harvest is in. On the other hand, you're concerned about what's going to be for the following year. And that anxiety is reflected in the commandment in the Torah, that we have to rejoice on Sukkot. We're commanded because when you're anxious, you're not naturally happy. You have to work through your anxiety in order to rejoice, to become happy. And I think sitting in the sukkah when the weather is crisp, but not too cold, cold enough to get rid of the bees, but not cold enough to be uncomfortable, it's just a great feeling. So I, I would just take a little issue with with that anxiety how of course there is anxiety about the future and and we could talk about the hoshanot as a reflection of of that anxiety and i think that that was tied very much to the water water rituals in the temple which which are so they flow in the <laughs> themes of of sukkot um but let's not underestimate the the real authentic gratitude hey look i'm growing some basil out in front of my house now and the, it's it's coming up after six, eight weeks. I'm really happy about being able to cut some basil and parsley and thyme and put it into all sorts of dishes. That That's a joyful feeling. And I know, of course, that it, I'm not responsible for that. You know, it's but but there is a little a little element of of joy in, you know, producing things. And, and the gratitude is reflected in one of the main rituals of, uh, of, of the holiday, which is, as Jerry mentioned, the, the Arba Minim, which are instruments of gratitude, basically, and the Halel, which is uh, reflective of, of Hodu Tov, you know. There's no question that gratitude is a key element of Sukkot, but I still maintain that there is a, an existential angst associated with the holiday. I think that the fall is a time when we begin to become more pensive. The days are getting shorter. The trees are burying themselves. And it's uh, a time of more reflection. There's, the time of optimism is in the spring and perhaps early summer, um, which we associate with Pesach and Shavuot. Now we're at the end of the year and we have more time to think because again, as a, as a farmer, our work is over. Yeah. And so we're thinking now we're not doing, but I think that first of all, I, I think that like anything that is poetic is not one thing, right? Sure. This is, this is the beautiful, this is the beauty of religion as poetry, because each of these things that you're saying are, are both quite correct. You know, Kohelet, we, we'll talk about this a little later in the call 
um, you know, we, this book that is associated with this time of year, death comes on, the trees do start to die, the chill is in the air, and, and there is a kind of anxiety. And you can only imagine that people in an agricultural setting, uh, they had more food now than they did. You know, Barry said it's, it's more optimistic in the spring. It's true. Like, you put something in the ground, and it's going to be great, but actually it totally might not be. It probably <laughs> might get scorched over the summer. But here, whatever it is that you have in the fall, it's work achieved. Like, so do you – maybe this is true for people in their own experiences of Pesach or, or Shavu, Sukkot. What do they like better? Are you a person who, who more likes a project beginning, or are you a person who feels more gratified when this is over? So I, I, again, beautiful. I mean, there's, there's so many different, uh, you know, valences here. Um, I would say, you know, when you compare Pesach to, to Sukkot, I mean, in, in addition to, to that theme, there's also the theme of uh, Pesach as a, as, a, as a truly family-centered holiday and Sukkot really as a communal holiday. Sukkot, we have to obviously highlight the idea that, that the temple, the temple rituals on Sukkot there was nothing like it, the, those rituals, the, the, that experience in, uh, in Jerusalem. It was therefore known as Hechag. I, I always like to talk about, especially Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day, um, where the Haftorah on the eighth day is um, Solomon dedicating the temple. I, I gave that, that was part of my, my senior sermon. And, and um, Shalom and I remember and, that. Yeah, so, so, so the point being that the temple and eyes on the temple is so, so, whoa, you know, part of the, the, the whole experience that, and I, I made this point in, in Shul, maybe I'll get you to react to this, which is um, Passover is the private holiday in which the, the covenantal idea of redemption is transmitted by uh, father, by parent to, to child. And it takes place in the intimate setting of the family. And therefore, the stranger cannot attend. So don't invite non-Israelites you know, non to your Seder. But the Sukkah is the universal holiday. And so in the Sukkah, and you, you might appreciate this, Yossi Klein Alevi in his book, My Letters to a Palestinian Friend, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, he talks about his Sukkah. And he says, in my Sukkah, I have um, symbols of every religion in there. And he said that that it seems to me it makes sense. And I, it, it, it does make sense because the temple ultimately is to become this universal place of pilgrimage. So just to push that a little further, Pesach is the season of redemption, which we identify, as you say, Elliot, with our family. But Sukkot belongs to the season of judgment. And um, I think that, you know, we're three rabbis talking and we follow in some way the rabbinic traditions. You know, the, the joy of the temple ritual, I think, has been replaced somewhat by the season of judgment. That Sukkot, at least rabbinically speaking, is an extension of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as judgment days, which, you know, is not how they were originally configured in the, in the Torah. Again, I'm not sure I would, I would agree with you, only in the sense that, that my experience of Sukkot, certainly in a, in, a, in a heavily Jewish community, is that it's the community, hol community holiday on a normal year, okay? You know, normal, yeah, I don't want to get too emotional thinking about it. In a normal year, you have a large Sukkah, you make your lunch, and you go from person to person, place to place, family, and people are having parties, and people are having gatherings, and the shul's having 
you know, scotch in the sukkah, steak and scotch in the sukkah, and all sorts of things that we're doing. And every night, every day, there's, there's another activity. And, and that's what it is. And, and, you know, friends, neighbors, you haven't seen for months, you know, they pop by, they, you know. That, that is Yom Kippur. You know, look, you're right in the sense that you, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are the communal holidays, okay? But Sukkot in, in, the, in the community that, that, you know, lives by these things is also, is, is not only also, but it's the joyful holiday of, of community. Okay, I want to I go ahead. pick up that, that uh, well, on, on the joy side, you know, uh, Barry has also been, but Elliot and I are now pulpit rabbis, and and the the man, this is just such a draining season. It's so hard, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and Sukkot is hard in its way too. Did, did, but our, the, our, the, our, the, our congregant listeners should know that we enjoy that we love this. <laughs> it is an unrelenting grind. <laughs> no, of course not. Um, no, but the. The, the feeling of the fun of Sukkot after the heaviness of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, I experience as, as it, it, it's, there's a lot to do and you're at the show a lot. And, but it, the, the tone, I find that the tone shifts from, from the heavier, you know, Yom Hadin kind of things to this, you know, Zman Simchat The, um, there's, uh, maybe not so widely practiced in our corner of the world, but one of the one of the festival aspects of Sukkot is called Simchat Beit HaShoeva. Yeah. The the what happened in the ancient temple is that they leash of to draw out of the well. They would draw out water from Motza out by you know on the road from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem now, and they would bring it to to Jerusalem in um, silver pitchers. And they would pour the water on the altar. I guess washing the altar in a certain sense, but it's kind of a rain ritual. And that, that idea of leash of to draw out, like the verse, you draw out water um, joyfully. So Rav Cook has a great line, which is, and, and Simchat Bereshoi is usually like this great party and lots of music, and, and uh, especially in the from world, it's, it's a big Mardi Gras kind of thing. Um, so Rav Cook has this great, great comment in which he says that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, as serious, as heavy as they are, they can kind of dry you out. Like, you know, and you talk about your failings and you try to turn around and you see where your life has gone wrong and you think about all your misdeeds. And actually, after that, you need to draw the moisture, draw the water, draw the life back out. And I, I do, I both think about that and try to experience that, but I, I do feel that that's kind of the way Sukkot uh, feels to me. So how about how about the idea? Let's let's talk for a second about the uh, Arbamanim and they'll talk about Hoshanot and they'll talk about you know so the synagogue the synagogue becomes that place that replicates the activity of the of the of the temple. I, I have to say, I mean, you know, we're we're starting Sukkot, but um, for me, Hoshana Rabbah has always been a beautiful, meaningful day. I remember, you know, even from days of the seminary, uh, and and um, you know, there was there was just a an incredible sense of joy and awe and, and maybe this goes to what you were saying Barry that the anxiety of the year and this being the last day of of the actual you know symbolic repentance um, so I, I just want you to offer your own reflections on Hoshanot in the synagogue and and I'll just I'll just and, and tee this up one more way because 
you know, we're not doing synagogue services normally. And, and our, our religious committee was trying to discuss how to do this. And I said, well, you know, you can't do Hoshana in your living room. You just can't do that. So yeah. I, I was thinking that, that, you know, maybe I would go to shul and, and, and I would, you know, that would be our Zoom service. And it, it, that's weird, okay? But, but so much of, of, the, of the synagogue life is tied to these rituals. Um, and just give me, you know, offer your own reflections on this, Barry. Well, the Hoshana, as you say, are clearly communal. They're not individual. They, that's why they don't work in the living room. It requires the entire community to participate, represented by the people that gather together in the synagogue. But it's worth thinking about what we're doing. We're marching around the, the synagogue with our Arba Aminim, our four species, all of which are dependent upon water to flourish. And we're beseeching God to save us by blessing us with abundant water in the weeks ahead. Yeah. because we're a little bit anxious. And I think that in some sense, the Hoshanot are about mind over matter. It's an attempt to cast our will to unite it with God so that God will nourish us as the four species have been nourished that we bring before God. To me, the Hoshanot liturgy, to me, is... Okay, the Hebrew can be difficult in certain spots, but um, so it's 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 certainly less accessible to you know even even to me than to than 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 the rest of the Sidur. But uh, the the Hoshnot liturgy is really amazing because it it uh, it operates with the midrashic theme of Shechina uh, begalut, right? That God is God was sent into exile in Babylonia with the Jewish people, that God was imprisoned in Egypt along with the Jewish people. And the liturgy, in a, in a few spots, you know, in the Anivaho portion, um, is, is about the way God, too, is, to be a little, you know, daring in a midrashic way, um, vulnerable and, and needs liberation as well. And so I, I find the, the the ideas in the in the in the Aniva Hope passage really tremendous, and maybe this year, you know, like we, we circle, we circle, we circle the synagogue, which is a replication of they used to circle the altar, yeah. and the altar's gone. And you know what? The synagogue's gone. I mean, it's of course not not physically gone, and we do look forward to returning to it. But that sense of galut. Um, you know, is maybe this year, even though we're not, I'm also not going to walk around. We're going to, you know, recite the, recite some of the liturgy on Zoom. It's not the same thing by any means, but um, maybe there's a way in which actually this is going to be really vivid this year because of that sense of, of exile. That brings us back to the Sukkah. Because when we're in the Sukkah, in a sense, we're also in exile. Right? We're not in our normal house. We're in this fragile dwelling place. Um, and that can also be quite powerful because we're talking before the show, the origin of the Sukkah, midrashically, is in the last verse of the Torah reading for Sukkot, um, where God caused us to dwell in Sukkot when we were in the wilderness. And we talked about the different rabbinic ways of understanding that. That's very far away from exile. 
right? That when we're in the wilderness, we're on our way to the promised land. We live in the post-promised land world where we left because we were exiled and we, uh, at least so far, are committed to the Galut in one way or the other. And it's, you know, to get back to something you said earlier, Jeremy, about religion being about accretion. It's not about taking things away, but adding layers and layers of meaning. So it's something to think about how the Hoshanos are communal and redemptive. And the Sukkah then becomes a taste of exile that we have to remind ourselves of. Let me talk for a second about, about Ushbizim, just because there's a lot of joy in that. I, I the think. movie? I, I love, I love, what's that did you say? The movie? The, the, movie. Movie, the movie, just, you know, the, the ritual. When you, when you summon guests to the sukkah, I, I, you know, I, I don't consider myself a mystical person, but, but I, I allow myself a moment to walk into a universe in which I am joined by, by heavenly guests. And so you... You welcome in the traditional Ushbizim. I do, but, but I'm, I'm open to your suggestions. I mean, I used to do a, a thing also where, who would you invite to you? So, so I'm going to ask you, who would, you know, if you had to choose a character from Jewish history, who would you invite to your sukkah? That's you a good one. Crack? <laughs> I would say Rabbi Akiva. Yeah? Not sure why, but I think of all the rabbis, that's the one I'd like to meet. Okay. In, in general, my favorite figure is the Ramban because he just was Ish Eshkolot, such a great halachist, communal leader, Kabbalist, um, his Torah commentator. The Ramban is my favorite Torah commentator. I mean, I would like to meet the Zohar people and I would like to meet uh, the Baal Shem Tov, but I, I, guess, I guess the Ramban is my guy. So I, I, I used to say Hillel because Hillel, Hillel is a very chummy guy. Because that's where you went when you were in college. Exactly. Um, but um, so there are two other rabbinic sages that I, I'm very fond of, and I'm sure you are too, is Resh Lakish. Um, and uh, I, I actually like Shammai, I would say three figures. I'm a Shammai person. Uh, and uh, Rabbi Barbarhana, who was a great, great storyteller. I, I, whenever I see him in, in, in the Talmud, um, I'm always amazed, you know, he, he had the most fantastical stories and um, he had, I think, close to the richest human experiences of, of the different sages because he just knew so much folklore uh, and traveled a lot. He was just a worldly person. He would be a lovely guest, you know. Uh, I, I don't think I want to emulate him, although, although, you know, storytelling is certainly something that I love to do, but... Um, I, he would be someone I would be enthralled by and be a great dinner guest. <laughs> so I would add the Magid of Mesrich. I think he's my favorite. I, the Magid of Dubno, Dubno Magid, too. No, Magid of Mesrich. I know, Magid. I know, but I once did a paper on the Dubner Magid and, and did it all like through parables. But anyway. Let, uh, let, anyone let, from the seminary from before our time? Yes, yes. That you would ask? Again? Anyone from the seminary, you know, who died before we got there? The Dubner Magid. No, he, he also died before you got there. <laughs> uh, I meant the Jewish Theological Seminary. <laughs> All right. 
Let's talk about someone who died way before we got to the seminary. Yeah, Kohelet is... is <laughs> Wait, that was before you guys. <laughs> so Kohelet, Book of Ecclesiastes, is, is, the, um, is the book traditionally read on the Shabbat of Holomoid Sukkot this year. It'll be read on Shemini Atzeret, which is next week. Um, and, uh, but, but the themes of Kohelet are, are really important. And, and I think, you know, Barry, you, you spoke about anxiety. You spoke about, you know, this, the, this time of the year. Jeremy, also, the, the, I guess, I don't want to say the wistfulness of it. Wistful is too, too shallow a word. But it's like, you know, the seriousness, the, the contemplativeness, the, the sense that, that we are now marking time and that, and that we can feel in our bones, you know, that the, the season is changing and that another year is being added to our lives. Um, so I want you to offer your own reflections on, on you know, take a shot. Any, anything in Kohelet that is um, resonant to you and that you want to share with people. So uh, I'm going to turn to, to, to Jeremy here. Well, you know, when I, when I was younger and sort of beginning to study Judaism more seriously, I, I really loved Kohelet. And I felt that his kind of snarkiness and the, you know, his, his frustrations with the, with the vanity of the world, the unfairness of the world, the impossibility of making a difference. I, I, I kind of thought this is, this guy's sharp. He knows it and he's telling it like it is. And I've, I've come to feel quite differently um, that, that I think there's a kind of cynical despair about this book that, that, uh, doesn't I mean the the, the liter the writing of it is beautiful and the the poetry of it just sings and there are parts that that aren't this way but sure. but you know the, the the kind of nasty snarkiness of um, of it's all you know cold burning you get him everything is just boring and and there's nothing new under the sun I I just think that that's not true <laughs> I think it's not true and and so. This this aut this autumnal you know Moby Dick begins you know that that was because of the the damp gray drizzly gray November of my soul in Moby Dick it's, it's like Kohelet he's got the drizzly November in his soul um, doesn't doesn't work for me all that much although there are wonderful parts of it so I want to take a contrary view and think about it as a book of comfort that one of the things I appreciate I think as I get older is the recognition that there is nothing new under the sun, meaning all these things that happen to us have happened to people before. And that there's a sense of comfort in that. We're not new at life. We are as individuals new. We go through life once, um, as far as we know. And, um, but the experience of being human is documented already for thousands of years and then undocumented for tens of thousands of years. And there's something very comforting in knowing that these feelings I have when I am anxious go away eventually. You know, one hopes obviously in our lifetime, even in November perhaps, but, <laughs> but it's important to recognize that, that we've been here before. You know, I remember many, many years ago, I subscribed to First Things Magazine uh, a religious journal, and at the the first number of issues, they had a 
a column written by someone who was dying. And it was very powerful as these columns can be. And one of the things that I remember is him writing, trying to work through his feelings about death. And he asked himself, why should I be so upset? People have been dying for thousands of years. And in the sense that it's perhaps perverse, but it also can be comforting. You know, uh, life is what we do as individuals, but we also do it in a certain sense as a collective, as a community. And it's good to know that for good and for bad, we've been through so much already. So I would, I would take, um, uh, you know, as usual, a different uh, approach. I don't know if I would say comfort, although, although there's plenty of comfort. And, uh, you know, I agree. I agree with, with Jeremy also that there's plenty of, like, snide, you know, snarkiness in there. But um, the overwhelming thing, and, and, and here, you know, I'm just going to pitch it to you guys and see if you concur with this. This is a man who's lived life just a little bit. I mean, this is a, this is the author of Kohelet has had some human experiences. He, he and I'm going to say he's a he, uh, has, has, has seen and reflected on things in life. And, and you know, I, I always quote the, the third chapter as like the smartest thing anyone ever said, the wisest thing everyone, anyone has ever said. It is a time for everything under the sun, a season for giving birth, a season for dying, you know, and, and working through the, the entire catalog of all the different seasons. And that, that yeah, life, life does go in, the, in those phases. I, I've used those lines more than once in, in comforting people and in talking to people. And let's face it, I've used it in my own life, in, in reflecting in my own life. There are, I have seasons in my life. We all... We, We've we've all lived into our well, Barry, you're in your seventh decade. We're all we're still trotting along in the sixth decade of our lives. You know, we, we've 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 seen a few things. We're like that commercial for the insurance. You know, we've, we've seen we, a thing or we know a thing or two because we know a thing or two. two. We've seen a thing or two. We and and we mentioned you know, does it does it refer to the pandemic as one of those seasons? It doesn't, but it's easy to to reflect on it. There's a season for everything. And we are in a season, we are in a, a time of terrible, terrible disruption of norms of, uh, on, on every single level. Some of us relate more to the political disruption. Some of us relate to religious disruptions, to social disruptions, to social appeals and personal appeal, all of that. And I find, yeah, there's tremendous resonance in there. I could, we, could, we could go through every single verse of this book with a glass of wine and laugh and cry and rejoice and feel gratitude and drink some more wine and drink and 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 not only drink but also you know say this he's got it he knows this you know i i, I totally agree with that and the thing about the thing about kohelet first of all as a book is is that it it doesn't have one argument i mean there's the line that i at one point kohelet says you know, therefore I came to hate life. And he doesn't always say that because he sometimes says, you know, seems to come to this conclusion of, um, listen, life's really hard. It's really unfair. It's, it, most of it is, is it's all, you know, hot air. Um, so listen, squeeze a little enjoyment out of it if you can. You know, find, find a spouse, find the sunshine, find, you know, a little, a little, glass of wine and 
and try to enjoy it while you can because it is so meaningless and vain. So it comes to some accommodation with with the the, the sort of tragic character of the fact that we're all going to die and we're all going to suffer, and, and that's true. But when you start saying things like "I hate life," um, th- th- there you 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 lose me a little bit, and I think that there's a um, a religious there's a la- in certain verses there's a lack of religious equanimity and focus, like the greatness of chapter three that understands that there's you know, times to build and times to destroy and times for birth and times for death. That's, that's, that is a religious posture. I hate life, you know, Tob yom hamavet mi yom hivaldo, better the day you die than the day you're born. Like, what? <laughs> that's, just too, that's just too much. Well, so, so I, what I appreciate about that is that Kohelet is in dialogue with, with exactly those sentiments. Look, we talked you know, two weeks ago about uvacharta v'chayim and choosing life as the most important mitzvah, one of the most important mitzvah. And, and here is someone who's saying, hey, you know, thank you, Elliot Malamut. Thank you. Thank you very much for your sentiment, your romantic sentiment about life. It's, life is just a little, a little more bleak than that. And, and well, I, what, I, look, there's so much joy in that, in that conversation. You know? <laughs> to know that life is bleak gives us a lot of joy. So I think part of this depends on how we contextualize it. I think we've all had times when I hate life. Hopefully it's momentary, but it does us no good to pretend it doesn't exist. The problem is if that's our reflection, if after thinking that's the conclusion we come to, that's not religious. I would agree with you, Jeremy, but these things happen to us and we have to respond and we have to recognize them and we have to reflect. And I think that, you know, we were talking earlier, Kohelet even today seems surprisingly modern. It's hard to believe sometimes that it's 2,500 years or so old because it doesn't read like that. And um, that in and of itself should tell us something that 2,500 years ago, there were people who thought there was nothing new under the sun yeah. is really a stunning statement to me. It's a, it's uh, I, I think that's uh, what you said reminds me of the fact that um, the Bible is a library and not, not a single book. Right. And so it's good to have in the repertoire, uh, Kohelet and Tehillim. It, you know, it's good to have, it's good to have Isaiah and Jeremiah because the rounded experience is not right. one thing, it's, it's different things. Absolutely. Well, you know, if anything can give us an answer to Havel Havalim, it's the Zman Simchatenu. I think that that does put a, put a different context around this. We, we, we are aware of the finitude of the limits of life, certainly in the change of the season. And that, I think, is, is part of the secret of our joy and our circuit of our gratitude. And of course, as we conclude this uh, time together, I think that that's what we're, we're hoping for our, our friends, for our listeners, for people who watch us, our members of our communities. We're wishing you a lot of joy. We're wishing you that this, um, this, this coming holiday be a, a one of great fulfillment. And to the extent that it's possible, community and rejoicing, simcha, hoda'ah. So we want to say shalom and chag sameach. Chag Sameach to all of you. And we look forward to seeing you on another special edition of Parsha Talk next week. Yeah.
next week. Next week we'll talk about Pacific Coast Torah. We'll Absolutely. get ready for Pacific Coast Torah next week. Thanks again.